The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Well, good morning, church. You know, one working definition for all religions in the world is this. Religion can be defined as humanity's attempt to comprehend and relate to the divine. And what makes Christianity very different than any other major religious worldview in the world is that we actually believe that during the Christmas season, God became a human in Jesus Christ. More than a good example, more than a great moral teacher, but God in flesh. And he's given a title in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 when the angel says to his earthly father Joseph that he's going to become the father of Jesus, that he will be Emmanuel, which is the combination of two words in the Hebrew, Emmanuel, which means with us, and El, which stands for God. Matthew says that Jesus will be God with us. So we've been looking at the ways that that's true in the Christmas story both in the story of Joseph and then last week in the story of the angel Gabriel's message to Mary. But today, I want to take you to investigate some characters that really have no place in the Christmas story, if you think about it. Their story begins in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In order to understand who this Magi group is, all you have to do is to think about the lyrics of one of our favorite Christmas carols written by an Anglican clergyman, John Henry Hopkins, in the mid-19th century. Read this with me. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse so far. Field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. We know from this hymn that there are three kings, that they are royal, of course, because they're kings, and they're from the Orient, and they bring gifts. And those gifts are gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And almost none of those details that I gave are reflected that way in the actual biblical story. If you read Matthew carefully, which is the only gospel that mentions the Magi, it doesn't say that they were kings. It doesn't say that there were three of them. The three comes from the number of gifts. And it doesn't say that they're from the Orient. That simply means from east of where Jerusalem and Israel is located. And so most of our understanding of the Magi come in images like this one, just a modern generic depiction that you might receive on a Christmas card this season. We tuck them in right next to the the shepherds and Mary and Joseph and the nativity, the stable, the star that led them there is shining over the whole thing and angels are kind of hovering above singing glory to God in the highest. But the scriptures tell us that they showed up after Jesus was born. The nativity scene we get from Luke, and here in Matthew it says that they had a long way to travel, and so the likelihood is that they were not there on the night that Jesus was born. So who were these figures really? Why did they make the journey? And what do we actually know about their intentions? This is a map from ancient Bab- the city of ancient Babylon to Israel. The red star is where Israel's located. And the the circle that's in the green with the the dotted line there represents the likely origin of the Magi. Now, 
It's possible that the Magi were from further east in modern-day Iran. It's possible they were from further west in modern-day um, Arabia or Saudi Arabia. But more than likely, they were from present-day Babylon, which is located in Iraq. In fact, the city and the ruins are still there of the ancient great city of Babylon. It's about 55 miles south of Baghdad. You could visit there. Well, in this story, it says that they come from the east. Now, did you notice in the story it said that they approached King Herod because he's the local person in charge in that region of Judea, and they say, we saw his star rising. They had been studying the heavens astronomically, and they'd noticed some irregularities, some peculiarities. There was a strange new light. But how and why were they able to connect this astronomical phenomenon with the story of Israel? Why did they show up in Israel and assume that it had anything to do with a new king being born? Well, there's a couple of interesting historical facts about this. About four decades prior, when Julius Caesar, that great first emperor over the great Roman Empire, had died in the year 44 BC, the week that they buried him, there was a supernova, a huge comet, which came to be called the Star of Julius Caesar. And what we know is that at that time, they began to think that that event in the heavens had something to do with the fact that he had died on earth. And from that time forward, for several centuries, there was an association in the wider Middle East and Southern Europe that whenever a great king was born or a great king died, there would be some kind of signs in the actual stars that we could observe in the known heavens. And so that explains how they had seen a star rising and assumed that there would be a king born. But why would they tie that to Israel? Couldn't that have been a king anywhere? Well, if you've done any in-depth Bible study, you may remember that about six centuries before Jesus is born, the Babylonian Empire moved east and they conquered Israel in the year 586. And they deported a lot of the Jewish leaders, both political and religious, back to Babylon to serve in the kingdom. And so when they finally were able to go home, we know from history that some of them remained in Babylon. And so there would have been vestiges of small communities and Jewish stories and religious um, uh, culture and so on in Babylon so that they would be familiar with the text that they read about and hear about in Micah chapter 5, eight centuries before Jesus. They go to King Herod and say, where is the king of the Jews? And Herod calls all of his scribes together, and they point to that scripture in the Old Testament book of Micah. That's who the Magi are. They're people who see a sign in the heavens, are familiar with the story of Israel, and they believe that God is doing something. A great king of the Jews is going to be born. There actually are these magi still in existence today, but we call them Zoroastrian priests. It's a very small sect of um, kind of a, in a very small ancient monotheistic religion that you can find in some of those countries that I mentioned earlier. And these were highly educated people, by the way. These were people that studied the natural world. They understood about botany and plants. They understood about zoology. They studied the human body. They were the closest thing to the physicians that they had in that ancient culture. And they studied the heavens, everything about the natural world. They wanted to learn as much as they could. They were scholars. They were academics. They were the intelligentsia. And when they saw something in the heavens, they thought it meant something on earth. Now, before you dismiss that as some kind of religious hocus-pocus or something, I know some of you men that hunt and fish. 
Pay attention to the lunar calendar when you set your schedule to go hunt and fish because you know when the deer are going to be moving. You know when the fish are going to be biting based upon the movements in the heavens. And it's not that different in this story in Matthew chapter 2. Well, what strikes me about these strange figures after going through some of that history about who they were, why they showed up, how they interpreted the signs in the heavens and the signs in Israel's story, is what in the world are they doing in the middle of the Christmas story? They're not Jewish. There technically aren't any Christians yet. And they're complete foreigners. They're mysterious. And they travel all this way, halfway across the known world, to try to find this king of the Jews who's been born. Why does Matthew tell this story? In fact, it doesn't do anything but really ultimately reveal problems in King Herod the Great, as we'll see in just a moment. Here they are, strangers, in the middle of the Christmas story. And so, in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. All Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Who is this figure of King Herod the Great? He doesn't play a real significant role in the gospel stories except around the birth narrative of Jesus. But make no mistake, if you visit Israel to today, you still see and witness the impact of an incredible engineering and architectural mind that was King Herod the Great. He was essentially a puppet king controlled by Rome, half Jewish, who lived and reigned over the Jewish people in Israel. But you can't go to Jerusalem, to the Judean desert. You can't go into Galilee or along the Mediterranean coastline without still seeing things that he built. He was an incredible visionary. And he was equally incredibly paranoid. As you hear in this story, he became greatly disturbed that there would be a new king of the Jews who would be born. And everybody around him, knowing how anxious and paranoid he was, why would all of Jerusalem get nervous when Herod gets nervous? Because they knew. Herod had already had his mother-in-law, his wife, and two of his own sons executed because he suspected them of trying to take over his throne. Herod was a tyrant. And he's the one that the Magi stop to consult with, and he tries to trick them by saying, once you find the child, come back and tell me so I too can go and worship him. Well, when they say to Herod, where shall the one be born? Herod consults his scholars, and as you heard, he quotes from the prophet Micah, who lived about eight centuries before Jesus, but there in Bethlehem in the land of Judah, they quoted. And so after... They heard the king in verse 9 of chapter 2. They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, 
in Myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So, the Magi, having begun their journey from far away, following the light in the heavens, getting some instruction and clarification along the way from King Herod and his council, they continue to follow the light until God leads them specifically, personally, to the home of the Holy Family, Joseph and Mary and the Christ child. And they see him, they're filled with joy. They kneel and worship him as king of the Jews. And then they present him with the very finest gifts, royal gifts that they have. What is Matthew trying to tell us about these strange magi figures, their circuitous route to get to the the feet of the Christ child? What is he trying to tell you and me? I believe when I read Matthew beyond chapter 2 to chapter 8, later to chapter 27, Matthew's trying to tell you and me something extremely important about our faith. The Magi here represent people outside our faith tradition who do not confess our unique beliefs, but they are sincerely searching for divine meaning and hope in the world. Here's what I want you to notice about the Magi that makes them totally different than these other figures around the manger in the Christmas story. And your nativity at home, what makes them different is not just their religious ideas or their ethnic backgrounds or how far they travel or any of that stuff. What makes them different is that God never speaks directly to them to get them to Jesus. They receive instruction from an angel after they've met Jesus about going home a different way. But in order to get there, they don't receive a personal and specific message about what God is doing, who Jesus is, and where He can be found. Nothing. They are studying the skies, they're studying cultural history, and they're trying to figure it out because they're searching. Now you think about Joseph, Mary, Zechariah, his wife Elizabeth, and even the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, all of them get a personal telegram just given to them by an angel from Almighty God. Not the Magi. They are left to use the minds that God's given them to learn and study the world and to begin to believe that maybe there's something going on here that is bigger than just the events on earth but are orchestrated by the events in the heavens, and they follow the light. Question for you. How many of you are in the room today, if you don't mind indicating by a raised hand, were raised in a Christian home, or you had family members that took you to church or brought you to church? Probably 90% of people in the room. I am among them. Maybe most of the people that you associate with that you know at work or your friends or your family, maybe they're all kind of in that same boat. But there are uncounted multitudes of people, people that you live next to, that you work with. They are your fellow students in the classroom. They are your customers. They are your patients. And they're not part of that insider group that's always been told the story, that just accepts it all as true. They're not. And they don't get these unique claims that we make about the identity of Jesus and what God has done through His death and resurrection and all of that. Yet, they still are genuinely open to the concept of faith 
hopeful that there is a God who exists. And they're searching. And they're on a journey. And sometimes that journey can take a really long time. And they follow a light, not necessarily a specific star in the sky as the Magi, but the light of looking out upon an an infinitely intricate universe that clearly exists in rotation and balance and harmony. And the light that they're following is kind of through scientific analysis. They look at the world and say some being had to cause and orchestrate and oversee this. Others follow a a light that's very different, but it's a light. An indescribable light of beauty and art. And they are so moved by a picture or the sound of music. And they are just drawn into what feels like a thin moment where the presence of God is just on the other side of their sensory perception. There are some people that look out into the world and they see things that go wrong. They see someone that hurts someone or a people group, a country that takes on another country. And they say, There's, that's, that's wrong. And they know that it's not just them that feels that way, but everybody seems to think that's wrong for that person to do that. And they search for the presence of God in the world through balancing justice against injustice. There are other people who search for God in a world because they say, death cannot actually be what was originally intended. It is too painful. It is too final. It feels too overwhelming. And they search for a sense of hope beyond death. There are so many people who are given that hunger to search the world for the guiding light of God's existence and hope. And we need to remember that they're out there among us. In 2015, I visited Houston, Texas with my doctoral cohort to do some study at some local churches in the Houston area. But while we were there, one of my classmates arranged for us to get a behind-the-scenes tour access, you know, neck lanyard kind of permission tour at the Houston Space and Rocket Center because one of his classmates from undergraduate had studied like him to be a mechanical engineer. and We were able to visit the Houston Space Center, and we were taken behind the scenes and got to see many of those scientists and physicists and engineers actually working to develop things that were going to leave this atmosphere and go into space. And I don't get to spend a whole lot of time around environments like that, and I was just so overwhelmed by the nature of that work and how specific and intricate it must be. And I remember saying to my friend's colleague, you know, I don't think God gave me the gifts to be able to focus on something that had to be so precise for the amount of time that would be needed to get it right. Because my goodness, just, you know, a billionth of a millimeter off and the whole thing just, just doesn't work. And I just, I, I, you guys have to be so disciplined and focused. And I won't forget what she said to me. She said, you know, that's interesting to hear you say it that way because I think what fuels our work is not a a sense of just being overwhelmed with getting meticulous details right, but most of us just come to work every day with a sense of wonder that we get to be a part of something that humanity before 100 years ago, 50 years ago, could never have comprehended. 
And the psalmist would write in chapter 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of His hands. And what I want you to hear today is that for those of you that are saying, you know, I'm, I too am a kind of a religious insider. I've always been around the manger. I get the story. It's my story. I understand it. This isn't just for people who are part of a religious movement that is dying out. There was a study conducted by the Springtide Research Institute just earlier in the year, and they found that one in three Gen Z students aged 18 to 25, now Gen Z are those born in the late 1990s up to around 2012, up to only one in three of them say that they believe in a higher power, and that's up from one in four just two years ago. That's a significant jump in less than two years. Younger people are searching for hope and meaning in the world. And I know that if you're like me and you encounter somebody who's on that journey, the first impulse is to say, you know what, join me at church. And that's a good impulse. I hope that you invite people to hear good news because you've had a good experience of God's grace. You want them to. But sometimes people just say, no thanks, church isn't for me. And you may approach them kind of this way to show them the light or the truth and say, well, you know, the scriptures actually tell the story about Jesus who would be prophesied and he's the fulfillment of these prophecies and you can trust in what it's saying. And they say, you know, that's fine for you to believe that. It really is. But it's not for me. You, you just accept that the scripture is true and I'm just not convinced. Or you tell them, look, if you're looking for meaningful community in the church, you can find it. There are people there that you're following Jesus together and you can bond at this deep spiritual way, at this deep spiritual level, and people will care about you and know you and support you and you can find community. And they say, yeah, that's not been my experience. I've experienced or observed church to be full of judgy and uptight folk. I got plenty of good friends who have my back if I get in trouble. No thanks. And I want to cut those people some slack because maybe somewhere along the way they encountered a King Herod. And they thought they were going to get somebody, somebody's guidance and advice, but instead they found somebody who actually had ulterior motives and actually drove them further away from their quest following the star. And they say, I'll pass. I don't want anything to do with it. Friends, what I want to encourage you with in this story of the Magi is this. There are a billion different ways that God is moving in common grace and general revelation in the world to help people see there is ultimate purpose and meaning at the core of human existence. But it may take them a while to make their way specifically to the manger to see the light of Christ come into the world through Jesus of Nazareth and allow that light of His love to transform their life through forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. I think Matthew tells us this story to help us realize that Jesus came not just for the chosen people of Israel, but also for all of those who had been outside of the family of faith, but who were sincerely searching. Because it's not the only, the only time it shows up in his gospel. If you fast forward to chapter 8, he tells a story of a centurion, a Roman centurion, I mean the face of Rome, who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, would you please heal my servant? He's sick. And Jesus says, well, would you like me to come to your house? Oh, no, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You don't, I don't even want you under my roof. But I know you have the power. If you just say the word, then he'll be healed. And what does Jesus do? The only time in the Gospel of Matthew that he uses the word Jesus is amazed 
at the man's faith and turns around to his disciples and says, look, you want an example of the kind of faith that I'm trying to draw you into? Look at this outsider Gentile Roman. They're the example of a person who trusts and believes. It shows up a third time when in Matthew 27, Jesus, not standing before King Herod, but comes into the countenance and the court of the representative Pilate of the world's greatest king, Caesar, Caesar Augustus. And Pilate will question Jesus and say to him, are you the king of the Jews? The title the Magi had originally given him back in chapter 2, Pilate brings it around and says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus simply says, you say that I am. A few hours after that, the henchmen of Pilate will take Jesus, mock him, placing a crown of thorns upon his head, a cloak about his shoulders, putting a staff in his hand and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And above his head, when they nail him on the cross, they'll put a sign in three languages that says, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. What they don't know is that he was the King of the Jews. And it would be demonstrated two days later when after he had been raised from the dead and he began to encounter the other people, his disciples and others, they would begin to see him as the risen king. And that's why his final words to them in chapter 28 smack and sound and echo of the same themes that we heard in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus will say, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What kind of person would receive authority in heaven and on earth but a king? So there maybe there are two groups in the room today. The first group are those, maybe the majority, that say, look, I've already been to the manger. I grew up around it every Christmas. I know the story. I agree to and confess the essential doctrines of the Christian faith about the identity of Jesus and what God has done through Him. If that's you, pray that God will give you compassion, humility, and wisdom to allow the light of Christ to shine through you to the others who don't confess that faith, but who are searching. God can use you to bring them to the manger. To the second group, those of you who are searching, I'd like to take you back in history just to 1961, when the first Russian cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, was the first human being to be uh, in space to experience space travel to orbit the earth. This was, of course, during the time of the Soviet Union, which was a communistic and atheistic form of government and worldview. When Yuri returned, he was interviewed, and everybody in the world, some of you even remember it, everybody in the world paid attention to what he had to say, what he had witnessed as the first person to leave the atmosphere of this world and to travel around it. My goodness, what was it like? And one of the comments he made was this. I had hoped to see God, and I did not, and I'm disappointed. And the Soviet Union took that comment and ran with it and said, see, 
There is no God because we've sent someone to the heavens and God could not be found. But two years later, as the space race continued, the great C.S. Lewis wrote a very short essay called The Seeing Eye. And in The Seeing Eye, C.S. Lewis responded to that sentiment that because we on earth had been up to the heavens and not seen God, that God must not exist. C.S. Lewis says, you're thinking about this all wrong, observed Tim Keller. A person in, on earth going to space is, does not relate to God as a person who lives on the first floor relates to a person on the second floor. Instead, he says, Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play, but he is never present in the same way as Falstaff, a character, or Lady Macbeth, another character. My point is, if God does exist, he is related to the universe more as an author as related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. In other words, the only way that Lady Macbeth could relate to Shakespeare the author, she could search all over the stage and backstage and never encounter the author of the play. The only way Lady Macbeth could encounter Shakespeare as the author would be if Shakespeare as the author willfully chose to write himself into the story as a character. And then, with her own eyes, her own ears, and her own experience, she could see a manifestation of the author of that play at work. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what God has done through the Christ child at Christmas. God has written himself into our world so that all who are searching for light may find it and ultimately find it personally. If you're in that first group, be patient, gentle, loving, and wise in how you interact with those who are searching. But if you're in that second group, I pray that you will not stop your journey. You will continue to look and that God's light may lead you to the manger to peer into the face of the Christ child and then up in the future to Him upon the cross. And there is your answer. God, I pray today for every person who is here, whether we consider ourselves long-standing insiders to the Christian story or perhaps those who are outside of the Christian story, but yet we're looking for hope and meaning to make sense of this life that you've given us. I pray today, God, for both groups of people. May your Holy Spirit bring us the message and the revelation we need to experience your light and ultimately to shine as a light for others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and God's people say, Amen. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. 